Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo. Welcome to Tell Me. Today's guest is Congressman Adam Schiff, who's a congressman for the district that I actually live in here in Los Angeles. He has a book out called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. I love this guy. What a champion. What a hero. Devoted his life to service, to serving our country. We had a great, thoughtful conversation. I love this book. The first part of it reads like a thriller. He starts off the book like inside the chamber as the insurrectionists are coming up the stairs and beating down the doors. It's pretty amazing. It's a page turner. And then it goes on, you know, just to be a very thoughtful memoir about his whole career. Pretty inspiring to young people, I would say, if you've thought about a career in law or politics. I really enjoyed Adam Schiff, and I hope you do also. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you? I'm so wonderful. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, really a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Of course. It's a pleasure to have you. First of all, congratulations on the book, Midnight in Washington. Thank you. It's my first, so uh, it's very exciting for me. Yeah. So the book, it reads like a thriller. So this is the first book you've ever written? It is. It is. You know, I'm from LA and I'm a lawyer, so therefore... By definition, I've written a few screenplays, but this is my first book. <laughs> okay, so for everybody listening, I don't want to give too much away, but I do want to hit on some points because I think a great accomplishment to write a book, especially given all the other things that you do, right? Like your 50 other jobs. But you open the book inside the chamber during the insurrection. I mean, it's a real page turner. And you do say that you were quite calm up until a certain point. But you have the sort of presence of mind to remember every single thing that was happening. And I give you a lot of credit for that because I don't think that I would be able to be that calm. Is it because you didn't understand the seriousness of what was happening or are you just naturally a calm person and that makes you great at what you do? Well, you know, I would say that everyone reacts to stress differently. I felt relatively calm in part probably because that's my nature, but also in part because it was difficult to tell just how many people were outside the chamber. And I was so focused on my responsibilities that day. I was one of the people managing the opposition to this effort to decertify the election. So I was speaking. I was hearing what the others had to say. I was planning my rebuttal arguments. And it was only sort of in the middle of this that I even noticed people were suddenly on their phones. And then I looked up and I saw that the speaker who was supposed to preside the entire day was no longer in her chair, that I got an inkling, okay, something is going on. But even so, even when we were 
told that we needed to get out and we needed to get out the gas masks, it was hard to tell just how many hundreds of people were outside our chamber until we could literally hear them banging on the doors and breaking the windows. Right. The gas mask moment in the book is like, okay, for me, that was like, this is, feels like it's getting very serious now. And of course, Yes, I guess you all could not tell when we were all watching the news and seeing the footage. You did not have that. Well, and those gas masks, they're not like the kind that most people are familiar with from TV. They're basically a plastic bag or hood that you put over your head. It has an elastic band around your neck. And just the idea of putting that over your head is enough to get your pulse really moving. But when you do, a fan begins and that circulates the air, but it also starts this buzzing sound. And as people got those masks out, there was buzzing all over the chamber and it just added to the real surreal quality of what was happening. It sounded like a a hornet's nest inside the chamber. Yeah, you know, I'm familiar with that in the same way that when we had to film the show last year, we had to be in what they call full papper, which is you know, basically kind of hazmat gear. And it's this full hood with a plastic shield over your face. And there's a tube that's pumping air and you're wearing a battery pack around your waist. And you sort of turn this on and turn it off. And it's really hard to hear and really hard to hear the other actor because their motor is buzzing. And you can't shut the motors off because then you are you have a plastic bag over your head, essentially. So I know something about what that's like, and it is unsettling. So we have a few things in common. You know, both of our sons are named Eli. Oh, is that right? You know, I know that we're both from the same neck of the woods originally. Mm-hmm. Are you still a Red Sox fan? You know, I'm not much of a baseball fan, I have to say. I like basketball. That's my thing. But I definitely was a Celtics fan. And then when I moved out here, I think similar to you, I've now spent more of my life in Los Angeles than I did in Boston. I'm I'm at that young age where <laughs> I've now spent more of my life here than I did in Boston. So I'm officially, you know, a Laker fan. Well, I've retained my Red Sox loyalties, which only get me in trouble occasionally when they're playing the Dodgers because my district is right outside Dodger Stadium. But my staff did persuade me to wear a Dodger shirt in a parade in my district. And I suddenly noticed how many Dodger fans I represented because all along the route were people in Dodgers gear. And they were cheering me more than what I would have expected because I was wearing the shirt. And uh, it wasn't until the end of the parade when someone fully decked out in Dodger gear yelled out, are you really a Dodger fan? And it was kind of a moment of truth for me. And I said, yes, the Dodgers are number two. And he booed me, but I figured I had to level with him. I get the same. And, you know, my husband is also from Cambridge. And so I get the same thing. You know, are you really a Celtics fan? Are you really a Laker fan? And so what I found a good answer was I say, I'm a fan of the game of basketball. I like that. So the Boston, our sons are named the same thing. And then I thought it was remarkable. You tell a story about the history of your family, which is also very moving, your Lithuanian, you know, lineage. And there's a picture, I think you said, of your grandfather with Henry Cabot Lodge. And the other thing we have in common is Henry Cabot Lodge built a home for his daughter as a wedding present here in Hollywood, in your district, I think. Wow. And uh, that was the first home that I bought. No kidding. I bought this beautiful old house and I was going through papers in the basement 
And I started finding things with Henry Cabot Lodge's name on it. And I thought, well, this is really odd because what are the chances that this house has Boston roots? And Henry Cabot Lodge, as did you, went to Harvard. My husband grew up in Cambridge. And I said, I just found that so odd that the house that I bought, the first house that I bought, had Boston roots. That's incredible. My grandfather was in very much the same mold as Henry Cabot Lodge, very moderate Republican. I have a wonderful photograph that I describe in the book, which is actually on the wall uh, where I'm, I'm speaking to you from, of my grandfather, who was a Eisenhower delegate, a Republican county chairman back in the 50s. And, you know, they were very much emblematic of New England Republicans, very progressive on social things, uh, very moderate on business and economic issues. That part of the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about my grandfather and his political roots and on my other side of the family, it was all Democrats, is that I was raised to think that neither party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time. But there were very broad, common denominators to both parties, support for our democracy, support for the United States as a beacon of liberty and human rights. And we have come so far from that in the present day, where one of the two great parties has become essentially a cult personality around the former president. And so I find myself in an unusual situation because over the last four years, I've had to fight that move towards autocracy, which put me in such conflict with President Trump, that I don't feel like I've really strayed from my nonpartisan roots, but the GOP has. And as long as they're an anti-truth, anti-democratic cult of personality, then they must be resisted. But I, I did want to set out that background that I was raised in, because I think a lot of our contemporaries were raised the same way. I agree. And I think, you know, coming from such strong democratic roots in Boston myself, I understand, you know, that balance is really the key. In your opinion, why is the Republican Party so, how did they lose their balance? Because I do agree that balance is the key to everything. And it's okay to have differences. And we should have differences because we should be in a place where we can question each other about things. But in your opinion, if you can even articulate the intensity with which they are digging their heels in, is it just an affinity for one person? You've commented and you've said that you often get asked the question, does the GOP truly believe their rhetoric or are they just trying to hang on to their base? So what is causing the anger in the vitriol and the loyalty to one person over loyalty to country. Do you have any personal thoughts on it, however unpopular they may be? I certainly do. And it's really one of the things that I wanted to write about in the book, which is how does this happen? How do we move so far away from a common commitment to our democracy? And how do people that I work with, people that I liked uh, and respected, even if I differed with them on policy, how did they come to surrender themselves to this immoral human being so completely, because it doesn't happen all at once. It happens bit by bit. And one of the things that uh, I discovered over the last four years, and I have to say it was a painful discovery, is that so many of the people that I work with didn't really believe the things that they had been saying, that at the end of the day, they weren't devoted to the ideology they were espousing. The only thing that truly mattered was maintaining their position or their power, or maybe getting a better position, or maybe getting a cabinet appointment. And anything that put that at risk was not as important 
as their ambition. And it was a painful realization because I thought that they believed what they said they believed, but it turns out that they didn't. And when, when history changes in the way it has over the last four years, it's often through the slow corruption of individual persons. It's not through dramatic acts. It's the slow undoing of people's commitment to the truth, to their country, to their oath of office. And I thought much more highly and better of my colleagues than I came to find out. One thing I kept coming back to over the course of the last four years is something that the historian Robert Caro once said in an interview. He said that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it does reveal who we are. And what I saw over the last four years is that power revealed so many of the people that I work with not to care about the things they professed, but to be solely motivated by ambition. And that has really jeopardized our republic. We're so dependent for the observation of certain norms of behavior to make our democracy work. And we thought those norms couldn't be violated. And it turns out you can violate them. And it turns out that even the best written constitution can't protect us if there aren't a critical mass of people in the Congress to honor the spirit as well as the letter of the Constitution. Uh, so it was a, a painful period of realization. And what I try to do in the book is talk about what I observed in people and the transformation they underwent and people that were given a choice. Some demonstrated great courage and do today. I serve on the January 6th Select Committee. I serve with two Republicans, uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who are risking their careers because they won't go along with the president's big lie. So there are stories of great heroism in the book. There are stories of capitulation, complete capitulation also to the immorality of the former president. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The farmer's dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. You have a beautiful tribute to the great Elijah Cummings in the book, and I thought that was very, very moving. What strikes me about this particular time that we're living through now is in comparison with other times, like let's say 9-11, we all immediately came together. You know, whether you were in New York City or Los Angeles or Ohio, we did have this feeling of overwhelming country and community and camaraderie, and we were there for one another. And the pandemic has not brought us together in that same way. We've been through something together as a country. We're still going through something together as a country. And I keep trying to figure out what is the factor that has changed? How after 9-11 could we come together in this remarkable way in just this overwhelming feeling of love and support for one another, for our country, you know, people signing up for the military in droves, risking their lives for our country, right? They were ready to sign on the dotted line and go risk their lives for our country. And now we've got this unforeseen enemy, although our healthcare workers can see it very clearly. And you would think that we would be able to rally that same sort of love and support for country and for one another, for our healthcare workers, for each other. And we're not able 
to find that empathy and compassion. And I can't help think about technology in all of this because it's the one thing that is quite different, right? There was no social media really in 2001, or if there was, I didn't know about it. But the advent of technology and our ability, everyone's ability to sort of fire off a quick, angry opinion, to react quickly, to make assumptions quickly, to read a headline quickly, is I think one thing that exacerbated our lack of compassion for one another. And so technology has brought a lot of great things to us, but I I don't know, I can't help but wonder if that's one piece that sort of helped to get us in the place we're in. In reading your book and all that you've accomplished in your life and knowing so many people go to a job every day that they find discouraging and they find just the obstacles insurmountable at times, how do you keep your optimism? Is truly the fight for democracy is like what gets you out of bed every day. It's really admirable because, again, the job has got to be so intense for you to just keep the personal feelings aside and just do your job. How do you keep going and find optimism in the middle of it? Well, thank you for the question. And I think you're absolutely right about how the country has changed since 9-11. And one of the pivotal reasons why it's changed, and that is the advent of social media and the way we get our information now has so polarized us and balkanized us as a country. I remember when I was in college, rushing back to my dormitory to watch Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. And that was a time when there was a large body of agreed upon fact, and we might differ with what to do with those facts, but we agreed that there were facts. And I think among the most destructive things of the last several years has been both the Trump administration's attack on the truth, the idea that everyone is entitled to their own alternate facts, to quote Kellyanne Conway, or truth isn't truth, as Rudy Giuliani said, That is so corrosive of a democracy. But when you take that, you take an administration that is utterly unwilling to tell the truth, brazenly telling falsehoods day after day, hour after hour, and you combine it with a medium social media in which lies and fear and anger travel with virality, it's a very destructive mix. On January 6th, and I talk about this in the book, as I'm walking out of that chamber and and moments after Ashley Babbitt was shot, I'm walking with one of the Republicans. He's carrying a wooden post that he ripped out of the House floor to use as a club if he needed it to defend himself. I remember thinking that I had been in the Congress uh, back on 9-11, 20 years earlier, and how that had brought the country together. But because this was an attack from within, based on lies uh, pushed out by Donald Trump, I knew that that would not be an event that would bring us together the way the attack from outside the country on 9-11 did that we were in a very different place. And when it came to the pandemic, tragically, even that awful crisis in the country that has claimed 700,000 American lives didn't bring us together as a country because during the early months and year of the pandemic, the former president was using the pandemic again as a wedge, making just basic health precautions like wearing a mask, a political or a cultural wedge issue. And that goes on today with governors like DeSantis in Florida, who are literally killing their own people by pushing out bad information when good information and science could help save lives and reduce the risk to those wonderful healthcare providers you mentioned who are on the front lines. In terms of how I get up in the morning in the midst of this and, and keep going and keep optimistic, I would say, you know, during the darkest times of the last four years, and we have some still tough times ahead of us, I would say to myself in the morning, I just need to get through the day. 
And at the end of the day, I would marvel that I was still standing. But I also would look for inspiration around me. And in the same way you described after 9-11, people joined the military to defend the country. I found that after Donald Trump was elected and began tearing down the fabric of our democracy, other people decided that they needed to serve and serve by running for office. And not coincidentally, many of those people who ran in that first midterm election in 2018 were veterans of the military and the intelligence community and the State Department. And it brought us some of the best new members that the Congress has ever had. People like Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey, who is a veteran, and Alyssa Slotkin, who was with the CIA, and Tom Malinowski, who was with the State Department, and Elaine Luria, who is a Navy commander, and Abigail Spanberger, who also worked in the intelligence community. Some of the best new members we've ever had were inspired to run for office because they felt compelled to defend our democracy. Some of the Foreign Service officers that I got to to meet and hear from, like Alexander Vindman and Fiona Hill and Marie Yovanovitch during the Ukraine investigation and hearings, just devoted patriots. And, you know, my feeling was, hey, if they can do it, if they can get up and fight for our democracy every day, so can I. And so a sense of mission keeps me going, as well as a wonderful constituency in Los Angeles that has my back and encourages me every day. Who do you like for mayor of Los Angeles? Do you have any time to look at the local races? Are you seeing any of it? I haven't really gotten involved in the mayor's race yet, but L.A. is going to need an awfully good mayor because we have no shortage of challenges. The homeless, you know, I think foremost among them. And, you know, these issues that are facing the country are really not divorced from the broader challenges that we've been talking about in terms of our democracy Because I think one of the other things that's put our democracy at risk, besides the danger of the last administration, is the fact that a democracy needs to deliver for its people. And for too many millions of people, and the homeless being among the most visible, the democracy has not been delivering. It hasn't produced an economy that is working for everyone, which is why these bills that we've been grappling with in Congress to the American Rescue Plan that we passed that lifted half the kids in poverty out of poverty but also the physical infrastructure and human infrastructure legislation is so important to the country and to the democracy to show that it works. Really, the the main purposes in writing the book was to identify what we need to do to put our democracy back on a solid foundation. And that includes a whole set of reforms to protect against the abuses of the last four years. But it also means making sure that that democracy is delivering for people, that it addresses huge and growing disparities in wealth, where you have people in the middle class who are falling out of the middle class, people struggling to keep a roof over their head or find a roof over their head or put food on the table or pay for their kids' college education. And we really need to be able to address those. And I think the major legislation that we are working on and getting uh, to the finish line is going to be essential to demonstrating that democracy not only works, but it's the best system in the world. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Are you going to be able to be successful at these things that you're trying to get a more level playing field? Do you see them budging at all or do you see them digging their heels in more? I mean, I've recently really just had to stop watching the news because it's just so much and so frustrating. Is there any sense of coming together a little bit more? I think at the moment, and you know, I hesitate to say this given the roots that you and I talked about, but right now, as long as the GOP in Congress is a cult around the former president that is devoted to making the current president fail and is not trying to come up with better ideas so that it can win elections in the future, but is trying to disenfranchise people of color from being able to vote, is trying to change election laws around the country so that if and when they lose again, they can succeed in overturning the election by stripping nonpartisan election officials of their powers and giving them to partisan boards or partisan legislatures. This is a direct threat to our democracy. And as long as the Republican Party is that way, they just need to be beaten. There's no negotiating with someone who is out to tear down our democracy. You know, conservative groups, conservative commentators, people like Tucker Carlson, are extolling Hungary as the model to be followed. Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator in Hungary, they are applauding. And the Republican Party has just become now the party of autocracy. And as long as that's the case, until they return to being a party of ideology, and not this anti-truth, anti-democratic cult, they're just going to need to be beaten. And for that reason, I favor doing away with the filibuster. We need to do away with the gerrymander that prohibits the popular will from controlling a majority of the House of Representatives. And we need to do a workaround around the Electoral College so that the popular vote always determines who the president of the United States is. So I try in the book to provide you know, some of the remedies going forward as well as a description of what got us to where we are. What are they going to get out of an autocracy? You know, I think it's a couple things, and it's not the same, you know, necessarily for the Republicans in Congress as the corporate executives at Fox. For Fox, when Donald Trump became president, they had a business decision to make. Were they going to remain a conservative network or were they going to become the Trumpist network? And they made the decision that if they became the conservative network, it would cost them money. 
If they became the Trumpist network, it would make them money. And so they made the dollar and cents a calculation that it was in their economic interest, no matter what destruction Trump wrought to the country. And you could even see during the pandemic, they felt it was profitable to push out falsehoods about the virus that literally, I think, killed people and contributed to thousands of lost lives by helping to push out the former president's falsehoods about the virus, that it was going to go away on its own, that, you know, masks were, you know, somehow an effete anti-science kind of a thing. So I think for Fox corporate world, it was about money. For the people in Congress, what do they get out of all of this? I think that what the Republicans thought, because most of the Republicans in Congress, most of the Republican Party hierarchy opposed Donald Trump when he ran for president. They thought he was a grifter and a carnival barker or clown. But when he became their nominee, they thought, well, this not so bright person who's got a popular following, we can make use of him. We can make use of his popularity. And he completely ate their lunch. And they went along with his lies. They went along with his immorality. And ultimately, they helped him build this base that they're now afraid of. They're afraid to contradict this monster that they helped to create. There was an opportunity, Ellen, after the insurrection. And I write about this when Mitch McConnell seemed to be weighing whether to cast Trump overboard. Uh, McConnell went to the Senate floor and he talked about how Donald Trump was morally and practically responsible for this insurrection, how he had used the biggest microphone in the world to broadcast the biggest lies in the world because he couldn't accept losing an election. There was even an intimation in something McConnell said that impeachment was too good for him, that there were remedies, other remedies, implying that those remedies might be at the Justice Department or be prosecution. But it was only two weeks after that that he was asked, well, if Trump is the nominee again, will you accept him? Will you support him? And his answer was, absolutely. Now, what accounts for that metamorphosis? It's this. McConnell concluded that if he tried to throw Trump overboard, that he himself would be thrown overboard instead. That may be true. At the same time, why are you even there? Why are people in elective office if they're not willing to do what's necessary to honor their oath and the Constitution, what's right for the country? Why are they even there? Why did they run for office in the first place? So I don't understand this utter capitulation because, you know, getting back to that question, Ellen, you asked at the outset, which is, do the Republicans really believe what they say about Trump or anything else? And the answer is, most of the ones I work with, no, they don't. They know that Donald Trump is a disaster for the country. They know that he's a liar. They know that he's ruining their party. They know that he's immoral, but they're afraid to cross him. They're afraid he will gin up a primary challenge to them. And apparently, nothing matters to them as much as keeping their position. There are very few true believers in the House of Representatives in the sense of true believers of Donald Trump. There are, you know, sadly, an increasingly new brand of Republican members, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others that are just QAnon crazy people. But apart from those, most of the Republicans in Congress know just how pathological the former president is. They're just scared. And one of the sad realizations of the last four years is we always knew that courage was contagious, but apparently so is cowardice. And so I think, you know, that's what motivates so many of them, the cowardly desire to hold on to their position. And that has overridden everything else. Isn't it remarkable that Mitch McConnell could devote his whole entire life to public service and want to go out this way as a coward? When really, don't you have 
you know, the chutzpah, at this point in your life, you've been up on that floor your whole life and had this power your whole life. And at this end stage of your life, you don't have the chutzpah to just say, I think he's a piece of crap. He's devoted his whole life to that town of Washington. You're going to let him take you out? I came in this for my country and I'm going to go out for my country. But instead, he's going out like a sucker. One of the things that I write about at Midnight in Washington is during that Senate trial, the Senate chamber is a very small place. And you can really see the reaction, the response of the senators in real time while you're speaking at that podium. And at one point during one of the day's closing arguments, I talked about how if any of the senators thought that they could count on this president that he wouldn't throw them under the bus with a moment's notice whenever it suited him, they had another thought coming. They may be watching as the president urged the Justice Department to investigate his enemies and thought they were immune from it, but he would turn on them in a heartbeat and they might very well be next. And, you know, as I looked around that small Senate chamber, there was no sign of disagreement. None of the Republicans were shaking their heads. None of them were protesting, oh, Donald Trump would never do such a thing because they all understood that that is exactly what he would do. And so, Ellen, you're absolutely right. There's no loyalty. If anything, Donald Trump would consistently show he would throw anyone under the bus. Look at Mike Pence. Right. Mike Pence was his dutiful servant, his, you know, head-bobbing vice president who did nothing but, you know, look like one of those dashboard ornaments, nodding his head in silent agreement with everything Donald Trump said for four years. And at the end of the four years, because he wouldn't violate the Constitution and decertify the election when he had no authority to do that. He sent a mob after him. He sent a mob. Yep. Yep. It's unbelievable. He really is just like a wannabe gangster. He really is. I often give an example of what a complete group of grifters were in the White House. <laughs> and an example I give is this. The guy runs for president on a platform of building a wall that he says Mexico is going to pay for. Now, it's an absurd promise to begin with. But of course, he becomes president. Mexico doesn't pay for a wall. The wall doesn't get built. Uh, so a bunch of his cronies start a nonprofit to raise money to get people to donate to build the wall. And people do send their money. A lot of people, you know, who don't have that much money, they send money. They believe this grifter in the White House and his grifter friends and then his grifter friends like Steve Bannon, they rip off the people who are sending money to build the wall. They steal the money. And what does Donald Trump do when they're indicted? He pardons them. It's astounding, but they're just a group of con men and grifters. And the idea that he could ever return to any office is just astonishing to me. And it's something I'm certainly devoted to making sure never happens again. It's so true. It's one con after the other. I watched this documentary about the Stop the Steal and how, you know, donate money to Stop the Steal. And you do this sort of automatic, you know, take out of my account automatically, whether it's, you know, $8.95 a month or whatever it is to Stop the Steal. People are signing it. And a year later, they're still getting money taken directly out of their checking account to go toward this fund, which I guess, I don't know, pays his legal bills or something. It's like, you know, throughout history, there's always been famous con men, right? But it's just remarkable how now, because of the technology that is partly responsible for all of this, we have so much evidence. It's so it's kind of hard to get away with anything now because there are cameras everywhere. Everyone has a text. Everyone has an email. Everyone has everything digitally. There's all this digital proof. 
you know, the stories about people going into the hospital when, you know, they didn't believe in COVID, they didn't get a vaccine. So then they're in the hospital and they still don't believe they have COVID. I have friends who are nurses who say, oh yeah, we're literally getting ready to put them on a vent. And they say, yeah, this isn't COVID. It's like people just don't want to be wrong, right? I have a colleague who I think summed it up so well, uh, named Mike Quigley, he represents a district in Chicago. And he was observing that it used to be people would say, I'll believe it when I see it. But now it's more, I will see it when I believe it. People will not see what's right in front of them unless they're prepared to believe it. So they may have COVID, they may be struggling to breathe, but until they believe that COVID is real, they won't see the obvious. With respect to January 6th, for example, there's so much footage of people attacking the Capitol and beating police officers and spraying them with bear spray. Do people see it? Do they believe it when they see it? No, they're not going to see it until they believe it happened. And this is, I think, one of the very dangerous turns in direction for our country that people have become so politically polarized, they won't see what's right in front of them. You know, there are people around the country, for example, with respect to COVID, who are taking medication meant for their livestock because they think it will ward off COVID when they won't take the vaccines. How do we get to that place? It's so heartbreaking to see, on the other hand, these stories of those who have lost their loved ones describing how their last text message from their husband or wife was, I should have gotten the damn vaccine as they're put on a ventilator. And so I hope that your listeners and viewers who haven't gotten vaccinated yet will be inspired to get vaccinated because it just may save your life. And if it doesn't save your life, if it prevents you from getting COVID and giving it to one of your loved ones, it may save their life. We have this miracle of a vaccine that was produced in such short order, another miracle of science, that it's just such a terrible tragedy that more people are not getting it. I've said many times the arguments against the vaccine are so inconsistent, in my opinion, because so you don't believe in COVID. okay? so you don't believe the scientists are telling you you don't believe it. You don't believe in the science that is the vaccine. But somehow, if you get COVID, you're going to go to the hospital. So what about what they're going to do to you at the hospital is different science. If you go to the hospital with COVID, you're going to be okay with whatever the nurses and doctors want to treat you with then. And you won't question that treatment. When you're lying in a bed and you cannot breathe, you won't question what they're going to do to you. How is that science any different? It's the same doctors. It's the same nurses telling you COVID is real. Get the vaccine. Those are the same people that are going to treat you if you go to the hospital with COVID. So it's not a different group. Yep. It's the same group who all believe in the same things. And with respect to the insurrection, can you imagine, just picture this for a second. What do you think would have happened if even 50% of those insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol, who attacked our own government, had brown skin? Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine. And in fact, one of the most powerful speeches on the House floor on January 6th, and I write about this, came from a very unexpected source. You know, after the insurrection was put down and we returned to the House floor to continue, the Republicans, astonishingly, even after that bloody attack, continued trying to decertify election results. And one of the speakers was a guy named Connor Lamb, colleague of mine from Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, very moderate Democrat, you know, a former Marine, a very generally very soft-spoken, took to the House floor and became very passionate about what happened and very openly critical of Republicans who were still trying to decertify the results. And Ellen, he talked about exactly what you described, which is, can you imagine 
if this were people of color that were attacking the Capitol. And the fact that the reaction of those Republicans was very different to this attack. And he understood exactly why. And we all understood exactly why the Republicans had such a different reaction to those who were attacking the Capitol. We can see in tragically throughout the country what people of color have to endure, both in terms of discrimination and altercations with law enforcement and all of the tragic shootings and strangulation of people of color. So, yes, it would have been a very different story. Yes, it would have. So you do so much work and we're so lucky to have you devote your life to a life of service. I want to thank you for your service. This cannot be easy. And what do you do for fun? You run triathlons. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Do you have dogs? Oh, that's a very painful question. Oh, no. We had a wonderful German shepherd for over 13 years named Mia, and she passed away about six months ago. And I have been lobbying your biggest fan, who is my wife, Ah! to get another dog. And so far, she is resistant. We just dropped off my son at college. We're now empty nesters. And Eve's feeling is, after taking care of kids, dogs, cats, fish, you name it, for 25 years, she's ready for a break (laughs) and doesn't want the responsibility of having to look after another creature for a while. But I would think, given that she's your biggest fan, if you put in a plug for us to get another dog, I can't imagine anyone who would be more influential. Okay, so I've got a pitch. So so I too, I'm sorry about you losing Mia. I lost Valentino, who I had for 16 years, my toy poodle. Um, I lost him on February 4th last year. And I had him before I had my children even. And I still have his sister, Gigi. She's still with us and doing quite well. But I too felt very guilty. I could never replace Valentino. I know Valentino's with me and I know he's watching me. And I know if I got another little black poodle, he would be so mad. (laughs) I have to be very mindful about what I do. So what I did was I rescued a little poodle. So maybe if you tell Eve... In the spirit of Mia, if you rescued another German shepherd, you know, Mia would really like that. I will try that. I will try that <laughs> because, as I say, she's your number one fan. I'm merely in the top 10, but she's number one uh, in your fan world. So that might work. And she's also, like myself, very devoted to animal welfare. So I think that's a good strategy. I'll let you know how it goes. I think pets add a great deal of happiness and joy. And I think that pets give us a lot of love and we need that. Well, can I tell you, I don't have a dog at home right now, but in my office today, we have two dogs, Tallulah and Luna, who are running around. And uh, if I had the door open behind me, they would come running in here. So I had to close the door. So I'm getting all the the puppy love I need at work, uh, even if I don't get it at home. Oh, fantastic. This was so fun. Thank you. Well, it's a treat. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the discussion and uh, I'm glad you liked the book. I do. I love the book. I recommend it. It's a fantastic. Like I said, it opens like a thriller and then it just it takes you on a very thoughtful journey of an incredible career. And it really takes a lot of courage and presence of mind and thoughtfulness to continue on this path. It's a very selfless path and a very courageous one. And I am honored that I got to spend this time with you today. And if anyone is interested in a career in politics, I really recommend reading this book. 
I think this country needs this next generation to be involved and civically active. And Congressman, it was a pleasure. Ellen, thank you so much. Be well and stay healthy. My love to Eve. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 